Types of burns. Thermal. Thermal burns are caused both local injuries and if severe, greater than 20% of the body surface area, a systemic response. The local injuries can be roughly separated into three zones of injury analogous to circular target pattern. The innermost injury is the zone of coagulation or necrosis, representing the area of irreversible cell death. Surrounding this area is a zone of ischemia or stasis, a, representing an area of decreased circulation and an area of increased risk of progression to necrosis due to hypoperfusion or infection. The outermost layer of the is the zone of hyperemia, representing an area of reversible vasodilation and an area that usually returns to normal. In clinical practice, burns are dynamic injuries that appear to progress over hours to days, making it difficult to accurately determine the various zones during the early course of the injury. Large burns, greater than 20% of the body surface area, also cause a systemic response from the release of inflammatory and vasoactive mediators. Fluid loss locally at the burn site, fluid shifts systemically, plus decreased cardiac output and increased vascular resistance can all lead to marked hypovolemia and hypoperfusion called burn shock. Inhalation. Annually, approximately 3,400 patients die from burns or related complications, such as smoke inhalation, carbon dioxide, or cyanide poisoning. Organ failure or infection. Burn treatment begins at the site of the injury. EMS should assist for inhalation injury by looking for singed nasal hairs, burns on the nasal and mouth area, respiratory distress, and sooty sputum. Inhalation injury must be ruled out in the ED. Inhalation injury can lead to upper airway edema within 12 to 24 hours, and recommendation is for intubation if there is any doubt. Fiber optic bronchoscopy as possible can provide an accurate way to determine inhalation injury. Inhalation injury is a broad term that includes pulmonary exposure to a wide range of chemicals in various forms, including smoke, gases, vapors, or fumes. Inhalation injury from smoke exposure is commonly seen in patients exposed to fires. Smoke inhalation is one of the most commonly encountered inhalation injuries. Smoke inhalation injuries occur when a patient's respiratory system is exposed to direct heat from fire as well as the toxic chemicals that are formed from the decomposition of minerals during combustion. The composition of smoke varies with each fire depending upon the materials being burned, the amount of oxygen available to the fire, and the nature of the fire. High oxygen and high temperature fires often do not produce large amounts of smoke. Low oxygen fires are often lower temperature fires, and these lower temperatures often give rise to more toxic chemicals, such as carbon monoxide. Other common toxic compounds created in smoke are ammonia, carbon dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, aldehydes, sulfur dioxides, and nitrous dioxide. These different elements give rise to a combination of gases, airborne solids, and liquid vapors that mix with the ambient air to create smoke. Inhalation of these components when exposed to smoke causes both upper and lower airway injury. According to FEMA records, in 2015 there were 380,940 residential fires, resulting in 2,565 deaths and 11,475 fire-related injuries in the United States. The number of deaths has not decreased since 2006 and has trended 2% upward toward a decrease of 9% in fire injuries toward the same period. The leading cause of death from, the fi from fire injuries remains respiratory failure and smoke inhalation injuries affect one-third of all burn injury victims. 
inhalation injury affects respiratory system through through damage to the airways, including nasal passages, posterior oral pharynx, larynx, trachea, and bronchi. The parenchymal damage, alveoli, the location where damage occurs is complex. Thermal injury often affects only to the level of the larynx. Chemical toxin irritants may cause damage to the airways, just the alveoli, or both. Specifically, water solubility for gases or vapors and the physical characteristics of particulates or fumes for, and aerosols are, are important for determining the location of the injury. More water-soluble chemicals will often damage the moist mucosa of the upper airway without causing alveolar damage. Examples of highly water-soluble chemicals include ammonia and sulfur dioxide. Chemical toxins that have low water solubility may reach the lung parenchyma without damage to the airways. Damage to airway tissue can cause increased mucus production, edema, deundation and of the epithelium, and mucosal ulceration and hemorrhage. Obstruction of airflow is often the effect caused by tissue edema narrowing the passageways and mucous blood fluid impeding airflow. A direct thermal injury is rare past the vocal cords because even superheated air is quickly cooled by the neuropharynx and oropharynx prior to causing lower respiratory tract injury. Most respiratory tract injury is from smoke particles and from chemicals that they carry. Chemical. A general approach to patient with chemical burns involves scene safety, protecting health workers from exposure, removing the patient from the exposure, removing any necessary clothing and jewelry, and brushing off dry chemicals with a suitable instrument. Dry lime in particular should be brushed off before attempting irrigation because it contains calcium oxide before that reacts with water to form calcium hydroxide, a strong alkali. In contrast to thermal burns, many chemicals will continue to induce injury until removed, so immediate clearance of the offending agent is paramount in the intended treatment plan. For most chemical burn injuries, copious irrigation with water or saline is the initial treatment. The exceptions to this are elemental waters and possibly phenols. Elemental metals produce exothermic reactions when combined with water, whereas aqueous irrigation of phenols may cause deeper infiltration into tissue. Gentle irrigation of chemical burns under low pressure is essential because higher pressure irrigation can cause deeper infiltration of the chemical into the skin and place the patient and provider at risk for splatter injury. Moderately warm water is often advised. Irrigation should be started promptly. Because started initial uh, treatment in the field has been associated with reduced severity of burn injury and a shorter length of hospitalization, Irrigation should begin with the eyes and face, which prevents further inhalation or ingestion or, to, of, or toxin. Treatment should continue until pH of the skin surface is neutral, which may take two hours or more in the case of alkali burns. Ideally, pH at the skin surface should be measured 10 to 15 minutes after discontinuation of irrigation. Litmus paper, if available, is ideal for this purpose. Neutralizing agents are generally not recommended given the potential for an exothermic reaction to occur between the two substances. The delay in obtaining the neutralizing agent will also allow for deeper tissue injury if water is readily available. As one of the most devastating and debilitating injuries cared for is in burn centers, electrical injuries comprise 4% of all reported cases. Burn surgeons must keep in mind that electrical injuries are unique because they may 
also cause a flash and external burn, but also internal burns from the current, which heats up bone and, and muscles as it invests bone. Electrical injuries occur more frequently in adults than in children because most result from occupational exposure. Patients who have high voltage electrical injuries defined as greater than 1,000 volts are at elevated risk of spine fracture injury due to tetany and require complete immobilization until vertebral injury is ruled out. Providers must also evaluate patients with high voltage injuries for cardiac damage. Direct muscle injury from current flow may cause gross myoglobinuria, requiring more aggressive, aggressive fluid resuscitation. Patients with gross myoglobinuria often require fasciotomy of affected limbs and a severe electrical injury often requires monitoring in the intensive care unit. Bone has the highest, bone has the highest conductance and electricity flows along the skeleton, causing significant muscle necrosis adjacent to the bone. Total body surface area is not necessarily associated with prognosis, and total body surface area does not quantify damage to deep tissues in electrical injuries. Entrance and exit wounds should be assessed when evaluating which extremities should be closely monitored for compartment syndrome. Thermal injuries occur as electricity can generate temperatures greater than 100 degrees Celsius. Electroporulation occurs as electrical force drives water into lipid membrane, causing cell rupture. Tissue resistance in increasing and decreasing order includes bone, fat, tendon, skin, muscle, vessel, nerve. Bone heats to a high temperature and burns surrounding tissues, such as muscle, which is the reason muscle swelling and compartment syndrome are common in high-voltage electrical injuries. Alternating current causes tetonic muscle contraction and the no let go phenomenon. This phenomenon occurs because of the simultaneous contraction of stronger forearm flexors and weaker forearm extensors. Current flow through tissue can cause burns at entrance or exit wounds and hidden injury to deep tissues. Current will preferentially travel along low resistance pathways. Current will pass through soft tissue, contact high resistance bone and travel along the bone until it exits the ground. Vascular injury to nutrient arteries and damage to uh, intima and media can result in thrombosis. Electrical exposure can cause significant injuries to other organ systems besides the skin and musculoskeletal system. From a cardiac standpoint, arrhythmias are common at the scene, any voltage or in the hospital, high voltage greater than 1000 volts. Heart rhythm should be monitored continuously for at least 24 hours if a cardiac injury is suspected at the scene of a high-voltage injury has occurred. Ventricular fibrillation and systole are the most common and advanced. Cardiac life support should be instituted immediately. Coronary artery spasm and myocardial injury and infarction have also been described. A normal cardiac rhythm on admission, however, means dysrhythmia is unlikely, and thus 24-hour monitoring is not needed. In addition, injury to solid organs acute bowel perforation and gallstones after myoglobinuria have been described and should be monitored. Myoglobinuria occurs because of disruption of muscle cells. Myoglobinuria from other causes increase, causes requires increased fluid administration. However, burn administration usually provides adequate fluid. Cataracts are also long-term effects of electrical injury, necessitating ophthalmology evaluation and follow-up. When taking the patient to the operating room for debridement and grafting of electrical injuries, the physician should perform serial debridements and allow the tissue to completely declare itself. These 
Injuries will often evolve with progressive muscle necrosis over time. Thus, early grafting within the first week often fails to fully close the wound. These injuries have some similarities to crush injuries and thus multiple trips to the operating room for debridement should not be viewed as a failure. Electrical burns have the potential for three types of injury. True electrical injury caused by current flow, arc injury from the electrical arc as it passes from the source to the object, and flame injury from ignition of clothing and surroundings. Electricity arcs occur at temperatures of up to 4,000 degrees Celsius and can create a slash injury as seen in electricians. Clinicians must also keep in mind that the force of electrical injury may throw the patient, causing additional trauma, ruptured eardrums, and internal organ resistance, which in humans is bone. In general, the severity of the injury is inversely proportional to the cross-sectional area of the body with the most severe regions seen in the wrist and ankle and decreasing proximally. Radiation Ever since the world was introduced to the power of nuclear weapons in 1945 with the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the world has been forever changed. The power of nuclear weapons has seen firsthand and the impact of radiation and its impact for injury began to be appreciated. For the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, many important lessons were learned. One was that the proximity to the detonation directly impacted mortality with 86% fatality rate, rates at 0.6 miles from ground zero, and it decreased to 27% at 0.6 to 1.6 miles, and then 2% for those 1.6 to 3.1 miles away. In addition, the mortality was highest during the first 20 days. Of the 122,338 fatalities at Hiroshima, 68,000 occurred within that time frame. Of the 197,743 survivors, 79,130 were injured, and the remaining of the 118,613 were uninjured. It is estimated that those injured in Hiroshima contained 90% with burns, 83% with traumatic injuries, and 37% with radiation injuries. The devastation of these weapons is massive and has some understood properties. The explosion generally generates high-speed winds that can travel at dramatic speeds. A 20-kiloton nuclear device generates 180 miles per hour winds, 0.8 miles from the epicenter. These winds occur with direct pressure and indirect wind drag, and the pressure wave can destroy windows and buildings and, in and injure parts of the body that are sensitive to pressure changes, such as the lungs and ears. It results in ruptured tympanic membranes, pulmonary contusions, pneumothoraces, and hemothoraces. A fireball that results from explosion results in thermal injuries, also sends radioactive material into the air near ground zero. The thermal injuries are nearly 100% fatal due to the incineration from the high temperatures. Radiation is dispersed in a linear fashion and results in burns that vary in severity depending upon the distance from the ground zero and the time of exposure. Radiation is also dispersed from the air and follows wind patterns, ultimately settling to the ground. Radioactive materials results in both acute injury from immediate exposure and more prolonged injury from delayed exposure to radioactive fallout or contamination. After initial evaluation and decontamination by removing clothing and washing radiation material away from the skin, a useful way to estimate exposure is by determining the time to emesis. Patients that do not experience emesis within four hours of exposure are unlikely to have severe clinical effects. 
Emesis within two hours suggests a dose of at least three SV and within one hour is at least four SV. The hematologic system follows a similar dose-dependent temporal pattern for predicting radiation exposures, mortality, and treatment. The combination of radiation exposure to burn wounds has the potential to increase mortality compared with traditional burns. Early closure of wounds before radiation depletes the circulating lymphocytes may be needed for wound healing, which occurs within 48 hours. Also, in radiation injuries combined with burn or trauma, laboratory lymphocyte counts may be unreliable. A significant difference between burn and traumatic injuries and the radiation injuries is that burn traumatic injuries can result in higher mortality when not treated within hours. Decontamination and triage are vital to maximize the number of survivors. Initial decontamination requires removal of clothing and washing wounds with water. Irrigation fluid should be collected to prevent radiation spread into the water supply. Work by many professional organizations, including the American Burnsum Foundation, has focused on nationwide triage for disasters and will be vital to save as many lives as possible. Partnerships between emergency medical services, emergency medicine, trauma surgeons, burn surgeons, medical oncology, radiation oncology, and others will be vital because of their injuries will require multidisciplinary care in ways not experienced before in modern medicine. It is quite possible that expectant or comfort care should be offered to pay more patients uh, than typically seen in civilian hospitals because of resource availability after the disaster. EMS in the first 24 hours of a burn. The incipient phase of the burn occurs immediately upon contact with a burn. The patient will experience tremendous pain and no drop in blood pressure. The patient needs narcotics and maybe some fluids. What the patient needs most is to actually be transported to the correct hospital. The incipient phase of the burn lasts for eight hours. The second phase of a serious burn injury is the fluid shift phase. The larger the burn, the greater the systemic shift of fluids from the vascular space to the intracellular space. Large burns greater than 20% of body surface area also cause systemic response from the release of inflammatory and vasoactive mediators. Fluid loss locally at the burn site, fluid shifts systemically, plus decreased cardiac output and decreased vascular resistance can all lead to marked hypovolemia and hypoperfusion called burn shock. The burn shock is not only a concern for the patient's hemodynamic stability, but also for the integrity of the patient's skin. The fluid shift will the fluid will shift to skin and result in massive swelling. The swelling combined with initial injury and of the burn can result in tearing of the patient's flesh. The damage from swelling seen in the second phase of the burn can result in irreparable damage to the patient's skin. The second phase of the burn lasts between eight and twenty-four hours. After the patient has survived the first 24 hours of the burn, the body begins to repair the massive damage to the skin. This recovery leads to, leads to the patient to consume tens of thousands of calories per day. The patient typically requires parenteral nutri nutrition to meet the nutritional demands of the body healing from a massive burn.